Kind of a weird one this week, huh? Yeah, it was exciting. It was, wasn't it? It was the, what is it? The, the agony of victory of defeat of thrill of something. What is that old sports thing? <laughs> I, I, it's the oh, wide yeah, world of sports. Was, so but, what did they say? They had a little slogan in the beginning. Yeah, the, the, the thrill, thrill of victory, the, the agony, agony of defeat. defeat. And then they show that little skier tumbling yeah, around. I'm sorry that came out as word salad a minute ago. That was I, That's confusing. all I ever do is word salad. But but I don't get the relevance of... of you want the, some ranch? I don't... I don't <laughs> <laughs> or just some vinaigrette. <laughs> We're like 20 seconds into this and I've already got an episode title. <laughs> <laughs> the Wantsome Ranch is a that could be that could be a deep cut for people who remember one of the uh, Bush Gore debates from mm. two thousand the two thousand election. You remember that? I don't. Okay, well I'm gonna leave that one there. All right, but I still don't understand the relevance of the ABC Sports thing for the live. Yesterday episode it was very we exciting. We were in a live recording with a bunch of people. That was exciting. I just don't get the. Was, Ag- agony of defeat it was did higher you, stakes did, it did was you, it was a uh, thrilling it was uh, it would have been agonizing if thing if something had been terrible so we recorded a live episode i love a mic at, at i the, gotta explain all that at the tech law institute at the invitation of paul arney and the tech law section of the georgia, the state, georgia bar. state bar and we went down to atlanta carried our microphone now this is a thing so i think the sound ended up being just fine but was, we had i think it was good yeah. the whole thing was going to be recorded and videoed you know for the whole day by a service that does these things but the, the guy who was going to do it was in a was injured like the day before unexpectedly yeah. so you know he seems to be fine though he emailed me so he seems oh, to be fine good. so th- that's all good to know yeah but the upshot was that we had to speak into the mics that amplified it, but also carry our own mics to record. And we were worried about how the, it worked out fine, though, I thought. Yeah. Right, so, so it was it wasn't quite it didn't quite go as we thought it was going to go. And you had been working with them, I think, over several emails to, to do some coordination on recording, whatever. But eventually, you know, with these things, they might change at the last minute. But, you know, you got to go. Yeah. And it, you got to wor- do it live. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, screw it. We'll do it live. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but but one one effect of of all of that was that we didn't have the audience mic'd directly. True. And, uh, no, luckily, was there a microphone for them to walk up to to ask a question or something like that? And we got some comments and questions. Yeah, audience, a lot, which, which was, really was great. Good. So what we ended up doing was, you know, we get a question from the audience and then we would summarize or read it back. So, but to save your time, I cut out all the time uh, in in what follows of the audience member asking a question, which was you know inaudible. Right. Uh, under to the save recording. your time, dear listener. So it may seem a little bit weird that we say, "Yeah, go ahead," and then all of a sudden we're summarizing what someone just asked. But that's right. what's going on there, and uh, yeah. it's the best we could do. But I think it came out well, and and so thanks to everybody at the Tech Law Institute. I hope we can do it again. Yeah, that was great fun. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't stay until you know they had a little uh, social event at the end. Yeah, they had. There was a lunch. There was a subsequent panel i think and yeah uh, but you know i had to hightail it back to Athens, I, so. I did too but i think next time i'm going to try to stay the whole time if cool. i can and, and what's also cool joe so first of all there were some students there that there we were. that we knew who were awesome yeah and the night before i was uh in uh, also in atlanta meeting with alumni of my supreme court discussion group oh that's so great it how was, are they they're terrific they're doing awesome things and it's just so rewarding to kind of sit down we talked about the Obergefell case. Oh, nice. But before we did that, they told me about all the things that they're doing mm. and all these great cases they've been involved in. Very it's awesome. And they talk about it in the most like, you know, sophisticated, interesting way. And uh, and then we get into Obergefell and it's just, you know, it's great to hear people who, who were super smart to begin with and, and whose discussions are part of the. I don't know. The, the biggest joy of like what I what I do as a teacher, like these informal discussions, which are nonetheless like really stimulating, is yeah. it's, 
and and to and to hear that from alums who show up and spend the whole evening having you know uh, this time it was uh, pizza and beer at the house of an alum and it was just great. So uh, um, shout out to all of my Supreme Court discussion group students. I appreciate you guys so much and and hope we can do it again soon and hope that other people do similar things. You know, yeah. stay connected. Keep the kinds of conversations that Joe and I have every week. It's the human connection. Yeah, make more of those. Keep it real. Okay, we did get a little bit of feedback we want to do before we before we do it live. <laughs> uh, we're not going to get to it all though. Uh, so next week, oh, program note. Next week we're going to be on hiatus. So right. no show next week, probably cuz it's Halloween, too spooky. Fair enough. So we'll be back the week after next and we are going to talk. I think it's going to be just Joe and me that mm-hmm. week and we're going to pick a topic and focus on that topic, but we'll also get to some of the listener feedback that has built up, including, you know, listener Nick had a follow-up, which we teased last time. We said, we get to it. Sorry, Nick, we're not going to get to it again this time. We're going to put that one off. It's just too meaty to do yeah. in advance of this episode. But there are a couple of things that, that we sh- can mention here relatively quickly. We got another email from listener Russell. Last time we mentioned that these uh, Supreme Court oral arguments, of course, are available on the Supreme Court's page. The audio of those arguments yes. is available there. Yep. I was lamenting that there's not a great, there's not a podcast feed that someone else made. You know, we could make it, anybody can make it, but uh, no one has. Uh, well, that's wrong. So Oye, the great site that we mentioned last time, yeah. is the host for some of these, the audio of the hand downs. Has an RSS feed. Has an RSS feed. feed, and we'll put that in the show notes. So if you want to subscribe in your podcast app to Supreme Court Oral Arguments, uh, it's there. So thanks to listener Russell for that tip. It looks like, from what he said, it looks like it's just for a given year. So you have to reset it, in other words. Yeah, once a year. Once a year. Once a year. It's like it's like checking your smoke detectors when yeah. the time changes. Sure. Except that's twice a year, I guess. <laughs> Mr. Armando wrote us with a great idea for an episode. This is a really terrific idea. We definitely need to do this. Get a get a prosecutor's perspective on, you know, the day in the life of like, what do they do? How do they spend their time? Uh, What are the various things they're doing day to day? And he has a list of great questions. And so that was very helpful. Thank you, Armando. Now, we're not going to say we're not going to use your last name on air because (laughs) we don't I mean, that's our, that's our tradition. There's really only one person whose last name, <laughs> and I'm saying last name to, to, in honor of my co-podcaster, Christian. There's, there's only one person whose surname we use regularly, and that is Nicholas Georgiakopoulos. Right. And occasionally- From listen- whom we also heard this week. We did. And, and occasionally listeners will kind of, will, will move into the category of last names like Josh Lee. When yes. they when they become because well, yeah, we're not going right. to say he was a guest. We're not going to do course. a whole episode with listener Josh. Right, it's right. going you know at that but, point. But so listener Armando, he his surname is interesting. Let's just stipulate that you would screw it up. Totally, but but un- <laughs> unlike most surnames, I think virtually everyone might find this one challenging. Fair enough. He he says in his postscript to his message. I guarantee you that Joe mispronounces my last name. I, I think we can all agree on that. Yeah, no, no question. Yeah. One of the things we wanted to do when we started the podcast was to have a mix of practicing lawyers, academics, and, and yeah, other we folks. We haven't done as well with that. We haven't done as well. We had Matthew Liebman on... Yeah. And of course, uh, Tom Goldstein. The Law of Animals. Yeah, we had Tom Goldstein. We've had Dahlia, who's not an academic, right. uh, several times. So we've had a few. Nice I don't know that. if we haven't done as well or it hasn't been a focus up until yeah, now. But yeah, it just hasn't we been can as do, much focus. But we, could, we, we can do that. that. We got a great email from listener Joel from Australia. 
Yes, about very cool. Sp- about speed trap law. Now, this is one of the emails we're going to hold in abeyance until we return. Right. Because I think we want to say more about this because we want to do more speed trap law again. We do. And I, we want to... We need to reassert our authority over this topic, right, and Joe? And we want to celebrate our listeners from all around the world. We are, we're the global authority on speed trap law. Yeah, we the are, world's leading authority. We are a global podcast. <laughs> uh, listener Joel's We reach everywhere message. except for North Dakota, yes, pretty much. <laughs> um, which is bar- barely on the earth, as we oh my gosh. obviously see. I love the people of North Dakota. I do all- too, which is why I want to urge them in the strongest terms to leave North Dakota quickly. Oh no! <laughs> leave quickly. You're better than that, North no. Dakotans. I think it's, a gr- it's the only state I haven't been to. I can't wait to go. Can't wait to go and see the Fargo exhibit. So thank you, listener Joel. And then we have another listener, Nick. Well, listener Nick is is uh, thinking about going to law school, thinking about doing or journalism. Journalism. He definitely should get in touch with Dahlia. Currently studying uh, uh, political science as an undergrad and is enjoying the show, and we love that. He loves podcasts in general, and he says there are there are a few of them that that have helped his ability to think critically and articulate upon these thoughts. And and I it, look, that's really nice of him to say. It and is. It's really nice of him to reach out. But one of the things I like about that is like if you enjoy this kind of thing and and you haven't done it, like you think, well, this is, you know, I love listening to it. These are great thoughts or, you know, or I wish I could talk back to these guys. I wish I could join the conversation. Start having these. Find some find some friends who are kind of like this who, you know, turn them on to the podcast. First of all, we could always use more listeners. Absolutely. And start having these conversations with them. Absolutely. Let a thousand flowers bloom. Just start a podcast of your own. Yeah. Tell us about it. Like the um, like the great blog. Did you see that um, there was a response on the uh, narrowest grounds blog that yes. we mentioned last time from a listener, and we didn't yeah. mention that listener's name only because we weren't sure we wanted to connect it. Right, right, uh, right. You know who you are. Get in touch with us if you if you want us to say who you are. That's fine. But we for various reasons we didn't want to mention the name with the blog. But anyway, you can go to the blog and and he had a response uh, to is it Will Bowds. Uh, uh, on originalism is originalism our law i think is he pronounces his name bod okay i'm sorry i you know (laughs) is it me who's gonna have these problems now Mm. anyway he had this really uh lengthy in-depth response to that piece which which uh which will bod kind of didn't retweet but he mentioned on twitter so he's getting a little bit of play it's really interesting so start a blog start a podcast uh Join the conversation. Nicholas Georgiakopoulos got in touch. We're going to put that one in abeyance as well. Is that right, Joe? Uh, yes. Listener Barbara mentioned something about a, a charcoal grill and a leg. Finders keepers, something. something. Yeah, we're going to we're going to hold that one in abeyance as well. Okay. And finally, listener Cameron, you can mention something about this one though, right? Oh well, it was just a delightful link from the from Scotus blog about Justice Breyer's interview in France. He was interviewed recently in a, a French radio program. Although the the stuff that you can access on the web is is actually video of him being interviewed and the interview is conducted in french mm-hmm. justice Breyer is apparently fluent in french listener cameron says hearing justice Breyer speak french reveals i think a lot about where he gets that annoying way of delivering his hypotheticals i don't think it's annoying and at he's all referring to or- his 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 hypotheticals at oral argument at the court here in the united states conducted in english of course um <laughs> But uh, so his far, hypotheticals so far are English, highly yeah. wandering and nope. complexly in, interesting, internally convolutedly, internally absorbed in helping to get to the point. Naked singularity of thought gravity. Now, I, I can agree with the last part. 
Maybe nine briars would be a little much. Uh, look, I'm I'm a I'm very much an admirer of his written opinions, especially uh, his antitrust opinions are quite delightful, actually. So I, there's much to be said by me and others about the awesomeness of Stephen Breyer. Sure, don't want to try to answer one of those hypotheticals. I think they're great. Well, I got one more, and this may bring us together in a kind of kumbaya moment, Joe. Kumbaya. Are you are you ready for this? No, no singing, hmm? no what? singing, no singing, no right. no theme music on the show. Right. That could turn in. Although I, should, I could sample that and I could make it hard. <laughs> um, we, we also got some feedback from listener Spencer on Facebook that we'll keep in abeyance. Oh, on the Facebook. Yeah. Oh, and there was a Twitter feedback, which I'll mention next time about Oye as well. Mm. So I'm just going to mm. hold off on that. Um, but we got one bit of Facebook, Facebook feedback, which I think is, is useful for now to okay. mention. And this is about surname versus last name Ooh. from yet another listener, Nicholas. We people. are the most popular podcast in the world among li- people named Nicholas. Either that or some years ago, uh, there was some kind of Christmas explosion of children and they're all named I think after St. Nick. Yeah, I think they're all ages though. So anyway. My heavens. So, he's, so, so listener Nicholas is pushing back, no surprise, uh, against me mm. and in favor of you, Joe, mm. uh, by mentioning that there's, there's a great argument to be made in favor of surname rather mm. than last name. Do tell. Because you know, he says he lives in Japan and would like to note that first name doesn't always come first, nor do last names come last. And so this is a bit of Western imperialism he's accusing me of. Or at least myopia. And he gives some examples. Uh, I think that these examples should be sufficient to prove once and for all that to avoid confusion, surname is superior to last name. But he has something else in this email, Joe, which I think could settle this debate. Hmm. So Is it me, an email or a Facebook? Oh, you know, it doesn't, I'm imprecise about these things. Okay. It's feedback. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's, a, it's Facebook else post. That what? There is actually an argument to be made. This is the first sentence. There is actually an argument to be made that surname is superior on the ground. I read that part, right? Yep. But what I didn't read was what's in parentheses after surname. He says, quote, surname, parentheses, or, quote, family name is superior. So I think he's correct. I've, I've been, I think, wrongfully Western-focused. Surname, though, as we know, is a terrible word. It's gross, I think. Family name. Now, there's something I think we could all agree on. What is gross about uh, just, uh, the word surname? I just, it rubs you me don't the, like the spelling? I, it just rubs me the wrong way. Okay. First of all, it, I, maybe it's because I have memories of being in like elementary school and being, ha- having to fill in my surname. I'm like, what the heck is that? Here's the consequentialist argument for surname if you agree in principle that family name is an appropriate reference. I think it could be a nice compromise. As against, as against second name. Or last, last name. Second me. name, that's even worse. Yeah, that's yeah. terrible. Family is three syllables and sir is one. So in the interest of efficiency, surname is superior. It, it sounds way too formal. And family name is very descriptive. If, if you say, Joe, what's your family name? Surname is descriptive for people who understand that that's what's being referred to. But, but uh, in the interest of amity and mm-hmm. uh, peace yeah. and respect, <laughs> yeah. I'm happy to call it family name. I just thought, though, of one ambiguity. If you ask me, hey, hey, Christian, what's your family name? And I wasn't thinking about this. I might think, huh, what do they call me? Oh, yeah, idiot most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're not, we're not referring to the name your family uses to, to right. refer to you. That was the family-friendly version of what my family tends to call me. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, with all that out of the way, let's proceed to, let, let's do it live, Joe. Let's just do it live. Let's just do it just live. Just do it live. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Um, Hello, Christian. 
<laughs> so we're going to try to talk in a way that doesn't spark some kind of uh, ICLE bar investigation of this yeah, whole thing. I true, think. true. Uh, can you guys hear us okay in the back? It, okay. Cool. That's We're trying to get it as low in volume as possible uh, for various reasons. But that high you enough can re- still hear. That you can still hear. And if, you know, midway through, you're like, well, maybe you could turn it down a little bit more. We, we can do that, too. Maybe sure. all the way down to zero at some point. <laughs> I don't know. That will happen in an hour. Yeah. So all this. Yeah. I, so we started doing this dumb podcast like a year. And you don't like it when I say that probably, do you? What? A dumb podcast. No, it's, it's a fair point. <laughs> it does get pretty silly sometimes. But we, so we, we actually have a topic today. That well is that news in and of itself maybe but it but is, we do yeah. normally we have well I don't say normally uh, two thirds of the time three quarters of the time we, we have, have a guest. guest we have a guest with us who actually has some knowledge about some things and then that helps us uh, stay on track but today we've got a topic which I think fits in well it really does with uh, with the other uh, presentations today and we thought we would talk about um, if you looked at the materials um, kind of the the brewing and incipient war between consumers and advertising networks and, and content providers um, that, I don't know, either reached a new stage or, or, or it reached a, a new level of a new kind of battle with the release of iOS 9, which includes content blockers or the, uh, an API for content blockers. And we included in the, in the written materials uh, some blog posts from Marco Arment, who's a, a well-known iOS developer uh, formerly with Tumblr, who has written a number of apps and is popular in kind of the Apple podcasting universe and uh, and wrote a content blocker, um, which quickly shot up to number one in the charts um, on the release of iOS 9. And then he felt bad about it for various reasons, which we can get into, and pulled it, um, pulled it from the App Store. And so I, I thought we could just talk about like why people want to use these things, what what it is, what are the what are the legal alternatives to um, uh, to the use of content blockers? I, I don't know. Do, do you use these things, Joe? Do you even know what the... You know, I, I was... Uh, part of what was surprising to me about the, the surprise about uh, the use of this stuff in iOS 9 uh, by Apple uh, recently um, is that I felt like for browsers on your, on your laptop or your desktop, ad blockers have been around for a while. Uh, in fact, I think there's an ad blocker called AdBlocker uh, that's been on Chrome for at least a few years, hasn't it? Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think this technology has been around for a while and it hasn't kicked up the kind of fuss uh, that seems to have been kicked up recently. And, I, and as I was poking around on the topic, um, it seems like not very many people use these technologies. And that's part of why it hadn't really bubbled up very far uh, into controversy, uh, that with iOS 9, perhaps this is suddenly going to be something that many more people actually use. And as more people use it, more advertisers might be more concerned, more tracking software folk might be concerned. Oh, suddenly now we need to worry about ad block. Do I have that right? Yeah. Do you guys have content blockers on your phone? How many people have installed one of these apps like Crystal or Purify or, or Ghostery or Adblocker? Yeah, some, only a few, right? Yeah. Um, I think very few people have been using them. Uh, and, that's, and, and that may be about to change. Yeah, I think so. And... I think one of the surprising things when you install, I, the, one of the reasons they call it a content blocker instead of an ad blocker is because it blocks. Uh, on Apple's part. On yeah. Apple's part, yeah. yeah. And, and it, I think in general now, because uh, it, it doesn't just block the ads, and, because increasingly it, it's not about ads. It's about the ad network and the tracking across the web that these ad networks do, right? Uh, contrary to 
uh, I think, most of our common expectations. Like every web page you go to that has one of those Facebook-like things is you're being, you know, Facebook is keeping track of the fact that you went to that website. Your digital dossiers of you being compiled of the things that you like, the sites that you visit. And I think most people probably don't expect that this is happening. And, and so there's a whole set of legal responses which has uh, occurred, some pressure on the FTC to regulate this sort of thing. Um, and, and this is on the other side. The users can now take control and, and, and fight back. And so there have been ad blockers for a long time, which blocked banner ads and stuff like blocked annoyances. But this is blocking like JavaScript uh, um, and, and other technologies that help track you across the web. And one of the surprising things when you install one of these things is just how fast the web is again. It's the, the amount of uh, data and the uh, slowdown on your phone caused by loading these things is pretty amazing. So I also installed Ghostery on my Mac. Uh, and you know, now, now my web browser it just is so much faster. I get much better battery life. I, I think most people don't expect that. But you, you haven't installed these things yet? No, I haven't. And, uh, and so unlike you, you, you suggested that maybe most people don't think this tracking uh, is occurring. Um, and I, my intuition's a little different. I think most people assume it is and could not care any less. Uh, in, in other words, they just don't give a fig uh, about the fact that, of course, it's, it's a global electronic network. Of course, people are tracking what I'm doing. Uh, it doesn't take you any longer than noticing that when you make a purchase at Amazon that for the next two weeks you see ads for that sort of object. That, okay, obviously, someone put these things together, and that's why I'm being served these ads, right? Uh, it takes almost no time at all to realize it's happening. Do you th- I, yeah. Do you think people really – I mean – I, I bet if I polled people, people say, oh, of course I know that they're tracking me in this way, right? I mean, cause, but I wonder if people really think about that. I mean, I, yes, if you buy something on Amazon, on Amazon you see these things, right? But do people have, most people put together that the reason I'm seeing this advertisement on a blog over here is because I clicked on a link to a blog over there? Do people put that together? Well, maybe not, but, uh, you know, the, the... Maybe there are data on this. Maybe a resident FTC expert knows whether there are good data on consumer expectations about yeah. this, but... But, but whether, whether consumers expect it in a consistent way or not, I think the, the, the general topic, it seems to me, is at least partly about uh, the fact that these tracker technologies and the context in which all of this is taking place is uh, about ad-supported methodologies. And in any ad-supported methodology, uh, the more effectively you can get the ad about topic X in front of a person who's interested in topic X, um, the, the better your system is going to operate, right? Because that means people who don't want to see X are less likely to see it. People who do want to see it are more likely to see it. Um, Advertisers, for example, have forever, with newspapers, magazines, uh, once radio began, right? Um, advertisers, of course, advertise in publications that they think are read more often by the people who they're trying to reach. That's simply a very analog, low-powered way of doing the same thing that tracking technology is doing, right? Which is trying to get your ad in front of the person who's more rather than less interested in this thing. Do you see, Ben Thompson had a really smart post on this on Stratechery that, that showed that there's, we tried to argue there's a qualitative difference between that. So it used to be like, if I'm a publication, 
I've got like an ad department and a content department, and like the historical norms is there's almost like a separation between church and state. Yeah, like it's a journalistic norm the, the of journalistic separating norm, editorial right? and advertising. And right. and and so my ad department goes out and tries to sell, you know we gather information about who subscribes to our publication, and I go out and I try to sell ads on the basis of the audience they're expected to reach. Yeah. And so I've got this kind of parallel model. I've got the ad department pushing in the same direction as content and we're you know that's what's making the money for the publication and and Ben's point is that that's not the way that the web works right I make a con I, I make content and then I I uh, what's the right word for how they I, I contract with an advertising network which instead of like operating in parallel operates kind of orthogonally to the organization you know what I mean so so the 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 ad network has almost nothing I have almost no information about what ads they're placing right. on my site right right and the network is really buying the ability to kind of track me across the web and I'm a piece of that right so it's not like we're in a partnership to advertise to my readers right I'm a piece no, of the web need, and exactly you don't need to know uh, the the te- the, ter- the technology that's behind all of it is figuring out who to match with what uh, so you don't need to know in advance because, of course, you could be wrong, right? You you could wind up if you're if you're thinking about it in the magazine world, right? Yeah, you might think, oh, the people who mo- are going to be most interested and responsive to my advertisement are going to read this co- this particular magazine. Well, that could be incorrect, right? So this system says, I don't need to make a prediction about it. I just need to let people behave, let them find the things they want, read the things they want, go from here to here, and as long as we're able to track them. Right. And I'm acting as if I don't find this creepy. Of course, there's part of me that does find it creepy. But but it, it's something I accept because of the, the benefit of accepting it is the the world of the web as I've experienced it, which I think has been great. Well, now that's um, so that's the that's the traditional justification for this whole scheme that uh, is causing publishers and advertisers to push back against right. these content blocks. I am nothing if like not a hidebound traditionalist, <laughs> as you know. I, I, do, I do know. And, and it's like there's this implied contract that we're all a part of that we agree to see ads. You know, there's almost like something immoral, some people think, about blocking ads, right? Because you're breaking the implied contract with the content producer, right? That I agree to that I will sell you some of my attention, right, which is the limited right. resource that um, that advertisers are, are 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 buying in exchange for this content right and and that allows us to reach a very broad audience and we, i don't have to pay microtransactions to read content no. uh, that's the implied con- now, do you really believe that I no mean, I, I don't i don't think i don't believe it in the sense that i believe the claim of the person who's been successfully using ads um, as some sort of moral claim that that using a, a content blocker breaks a contract, uh, I th- I think that's silly. Um, yeah, how many of you guys? Just let's show of hands. How many of you would think there's something wrongful or about blocking ads? Is it because you, is it implied contract? Is that kind of the idea that there's a by visiting or, the site, or is it just a consequential? Like you think it's bad to do it because you think it might mean your publication closes. Is that that's you, so yeah? Go ahead. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, because we don't have you mic'd, we'll have to give a totally unfair summary of what you just said for our listeners. Uh, but but it is. <laughs> I, I think the point is right that there is a your objection is more consequentialist in in the sense that if uh, if people uh, take up um, uh, st- install these content blocking apps on their on their phones on their on their computers that. 
regardless of whether you, you think that people who block ads are immoral or, or breaching an implied contract or even breaching some kind of social contract, the effect will be, as I heard you say it, the effect will be uh, that we will no longer be able to fund this social uh, uh, function of providing content in the same way that we have. And you're not sure that people would actually want that other world where things are funded by paywalls or in other ways if they could sit down and think about it and choose it, right? But that's where this inevitably leads because of some kind of tragedy of the commons or something else where people make an individual decision to block ads. And some, some portion, of course, of viewers might simply be ill-informed that they've been paying with their attention. Um, but but whether, whether or not that is the case... If the consequences unfold in the way some people suggest they may, we'll find out soon enough that that's the consequence. It's right? interesting. I just had a conversation. I had like two conversations in a row. I think it was in September with with people who uh, about uh, Apple and Android and how they make their money. And like one, one of the reasons I like my iPhone and stuff is is that I, the transaction is more transparent to me. Um, and uh, I and I know I'm not being tracked in the same way. There's that location tracking. There are always these little gates with Apple that happen, you know, antenna gate and the location gate, which are almost all nonsense when you dig into them. But, um, but the, and and there are a couple of friends who would say, you know, they all do that because I would say, well, you know, Google's you're going through your email. There's, there's this dossier. There's some tracking going on. They even evaded the um, uh, the the um, what is it, the blocking thing that you could put on on Safari. Do you know what I'm talking about on the web browser? Anyway, you you could turn something on and and they found a way around that. Um, and Paul has a comment at some point. And we've got, and a hand just went up over well, here. On, let me, let me so, summarize. So, yes, yeah, so yeah. you summarize the so, question. Yeah, yeah Paul's, question is, Paul's question is whether, uh, whether apps in Europe, for example, are more expensive than apps in the, in the States under the assumption that where privacy regulations are more stringent in, in Europe, if, uh, if in fact there's this effect, you might expect to see apps be more expensive there uh, uh, to cover this shortfall. And does someone know the answer to this? So the, the comment is that in France, the same apps are more expensive. Huh. Um, I, 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 don't, I haven't seen those data, so, so yeah. I don't know for sure. But, but this is another empirical question. It would be interesting to see. Well, one reason I think that it might... Data I, about. Yeah, I don't know. So the, the point of my story was that both of these friends were, were like, yeah, well, you know, you're really naive to think that you're not being tracked by this. They all do the same thing, right? And so if you followed, you know, the things that Tim Cook has been saying and you follow kind of the developer stuff and you followed the people on the IADS team at Apple who have left because they can't do the same kind of thing they could do at other companies, like you see that there's this real difference in approach, but Apple hasn't found a way to sell like that privacy advantage in the same, you know, that they're trying to, but it doesn't seem like that's gathered traction. A lot of people just assume that all these companies all do the same thing. And so if you're a believer in the private market to settle this, that if you care about privacy, you'll pay up front. You'll, you'll pay for the app rather than get the free app. You'll pay for the iPhone rather than get a cheaper Android phone. Or you'll pay for the Android phone, which promises privacy. You know, they could, they could do that. Sure. This is kind of a challenge to that. How do you trust these companies that say, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the, so the, com- yeah, the comment is that, that, this is a, that this is a war but, uh, and, and that... Um, that you you do see though uh, well I guess the comment before the war point was the one about services like Spotify and like Hulu now which offer an ad free experience for pay and an ad experience for free and and I don't have all those data on what consumers have chosen but it, it does point out though that um, to, that if in this war that you mentioned in, your, in the second part of your comment uh, consumers somehow win because of technology in the sense that they are able to completely to control ads and other things, uh, 
then there are distributive consequences to pay attention to. Like, you know, a lot of people can access free TV and free websites and information sites who could not afford uh, to pay to get behind a, a paywall, who are in a sense being subsidized by by maybe those of us who could or, or by the attention of those who will spend money on goods and services that people are selling. And that's, uh, I, I wanted to read one thing and, and that your comment made me think of, though. There was this New York Times article about Marco Arment's app and, and content blockers in, in iOS 9. The app was called Peace, uh, which he offered to people and then just a few days later took back off the app store. And so part of what we included, what Christian put together in the readings for you, was a series of these posts where he describes the product and then describes taking it off. He doesn't say a whole lot about exactly what his thinking was and why he removed it. He says a little bit. I feel like there's a much deeper story well, if you there listen that to him, hearing, the, uh, He says there's not. If you listen to him in the podcast, I think it's the fact that he makes this ad blocker, which he assumes there will be a whole bunch of them on the App Store on day one, and there will just be a lot of people who have ad blockers. There'll be a bunch of competition, and he'll sell a few. He wants to make one that he likes, that he that is tied to a service that he likes, Ghostery. Um, and then it rockets up to the very top of the chart so that most people with content blockers are using Marco's app. Right. And and now he's a market leader and is now the face of content blocking and his choices about whether to treat all ad companies the same. Like suddenly these are really consequential and he doesn't want to be in that position. Like he wants to make an app that he wants to use. He doesn't want to be the public face of this war that's been described between in the um, heat of that spotlight. Yeah. So so the comment was uh, so. so, And I wonder if people. So this is the New York Times. Yeah, this is the New York Times piece. This is the last paragraph of it. And and it's an advertiser. The chief technology officer, I guess this is Neil Richter from Rubicon, uh, uh, says in ad tech, we tend to look at this as an opportunity to address the core issue, which is making the user experience better. And, and, and maybe Neil, you know, maybe he really believes that. Um, but I wonder if it's uh, if this is is that really going to be the response? I mean, if if lots of people use content blockers, are ad companies going to respond by making like better, less intrusive, less creepy ad tracking technologies? And then we're like, oh, well, now ads are so much better, so I'll just remove my content blocker. <laughs> or are they going to find technological ways to get around the content blocking, which seems much more likely to me, I have to say. We had a comment over on the right side of the room, though. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so the, comment, the, the comment from the audience reflects uh, the inner turmoil a lot of us have in, this, uh, in, in the information economy, and, and that is that there are a lot of conveniences with disclosing information about ourselves and allowing other people to aggregate that information in ways we didn't expect. They can, uh, the example you gave was you're doing a lot of things in Google, scheduling, calendars, et cetera, and all of a sudden Google is able to push something to you telling you what the weather is going to be in a city that you didn't expect to be in, uh, but that you will in fact be in, right? So this is, this, I, I don't know if that's Google now or not that you're using, but Google has a technology, Apple now has a set of technologies which try to help, try to be proactive, that's Apple's term, about like what, uh, what you're going to be experiencing and pushing things to you that are relevant, whether they're calendar dates, weather, things like that. Um, and, and the other, uh, on the one hand, it's kind of creepy. On the other hand, it's, it's useful. And whether it's creepy, I don't, maybe does it depend to, does it for you depend on whether there's a person in Google who, at Google or a person who could get at that information? So one of the things that Apple tries to... Or if to, someone else could get it or... Right. right. How anonymized is it? The, it could be useful to you, but, but not be available to somebody else. Yeah, and one of the things that Apple works on is, is trying to sell, and I think unsuccessfully so far, is the way that it's engineered its products so that 
no one could possibly get at that information. In other words, the because of what's stored on your on locally on your device and what's in the cloud, there would be no way for them to go back and figure out. Like, there's no way for any individual to figure out that you were in a certain city or that you're going. Like, that's baked in from to, uh, to the product from the beginning, and that, that certainly that could be part of a regulation. I mean, regulations could force that on everyone. Well, this is the segue but, that I want to because because the second comment about the 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 security uh, convenience trade off. Uh, and and the the privacy security aspect is and is a, is a thread of that. It's an example of that. Um, but the I think the broader point of security and convenience I think is is a segue to that other frame, which is uh, we can leave in place a situation where each of us are making these decisions individually. Uh, but one thing that can happen when all of these decisions are made individually is that we can all be at a at a place that leaves us worse off than we would be if we made some of the decisions as a group, right? That we're each willing to sacrifice maybe more than we should or more than we realize by a metric that if we got together, we could come up with a different equilibrium point, a different resting place that we would all actually prefer. It's simply difficult for us to get there one at a time. Uh, and that is because a, of free riders and all the, you know, typical collective action problems. Yeah. Right. Not having complete information, uh, not, uh, you know, part of your preference being contingent on other people's preferences. And, and if you don't have that information, it's, of course, hard for you to make uh, a decision based on it. So so this seems like a segue to talk about a different frame. Do you know what it's a segue to? What? Getting a live comment from longtime listener Bunny. Wow. This is, which is amazing. Let's do it. Which is amazing. And this is a great experience for us. Yes. We're going to get a lot out of this. One thing we're going to get out of it is this bottle of scotch. Yes. Which is, our, which is our second bottle of scotch from a listener. The other one came from listener Paul yes. in Canada. Who sent it to us from Eastern Canada. He actually sent us a bottle of, of whiskey, which uh, was wonderful and fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Uh, and Christian liked the whiskey even more than I did. Uh, I think a lot more. Not actually. all at once. I didn't. You're no, making no, it sound true, like I liked it all true, at once. Right? I don't you didn't know. Just chug it. That's true. <laughs> um, but so, what's your what's your question or your comment or your thought? How do they get access to your? So, so the question. So, so listener Bunny's comment is that it's creepy that Google seems to have information about the bills that you have due and when you've paid them. And 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 I'm curious about the context in which this came up. Did you use an app of theirs? Is it calendar? Google Calendar? And so I've this never, is this is why it's critical to ask the question. Not only what am I being shown, but what are other? Can can that very same screen of information be shown to other people with my name attached to it? If not. Can it be shown to them even without my name? And what might they be able to infer from the information alone? I mean, there's a, it raises a lot of questions about who else can pull the pieces of the puzzle together that way. Do you think this is why I'm getting all kinds of ads for debt consolidation and, and, and lottery <laughs> tickets? And this, suddenly everything is making you, everything is snapping into place with Bunny's right, comment, right. I think. And I eventually know. whiskey. You'll get whiskey ads. Right? That's, that's true. Um, that's at the, that's at the bottom of a very long slope. Yeah. <laughs> once, right. once they can do search of audio, oh boy. Um, which I'm sure that will come one day. Oh boy! But, um, so let's try to shift to this regulatory frame as a different way of thinking. So the market obviously offers a, yeah. a, a, a series of techniques and tools that can solve a variety of different kinds of problems, but it does leave some sorts of things unaddressed. 
And it has all kinds of uncertainties, as does the, you know, just because you have a regulation which says you have to do X doesn't mean that's what people do. The, the world after a regulation looks one way, right? And so you're kind of choosing between two worlds, and the world you get with regulation is all the, the world in which all the effects of that regulation happen, including black markets and evasion and, right. and, and getting around. So we don't know what all that's going to So there's some uncertainty. There's, and I only say that because, of course, there's uncertainty with the unregulated market. Right. So are people going to adopt these content blockers? Right. To what degree? How are people going to monetize if everyone is using them? That's a world full of uncertainty. So we're kind yeah. of these are two different responses to if you think there's a problem here that people don't understand the degree to which they're being tracked, that they wouldn't prefer that if they knew it, or at least it's questionable whether they would prefer it. Then the question is, what's the response to that? One response is let me get one of these content blockers and I will now take the decision whether to do that, yeah. um, which involves problems of like, well, how are we going to monetize stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And that's Another still in the individual is, action frame. That's not in the group action frame, which is the one that I'm saying what, what's right. in there. The other response is law, right? And then the question is, well, what kind of law? How should law respond to what seems to be, um, I don't know, disruption, but, but um, a whole marketplace in which people are trading things that they don't understand that they're trading. Can I, do, can I divert for just a little bit of a nudge point? Oh, boy. And, and that, I, that you just suggested that markets don't need or uh, can do. exist outside of a, a, a body of law. That's or usually the, the point that you law. make on the show. Right. Uh, yeah. mm. Mm. No, I make the opposite point. Oh, boy. Um, which is um, that, yeah, markets are, are another... Uh, there, are, there are no markets without law. So of course. let's get back to what you were really saying. Yeah, we're going to have a show about that one falsely soon. falsely suggesting that markets oh my could God. exist without law, which you kind of just did. But let's not... I, Let's not do that. You don't want to belabor that. I really don't. Is there anything else you want to say about it? No, but that was just so egregious that I, I mean, it was so awful that I can't let it go because it's a terrible thing to suggest to people. Yeah. Especially would, impressionable people. There it would have been. people who listen to this who might, I mean, that might really do it would have been. It would have been horrible if I'd suggested that. I agree with you. Yeah, cool. I All agree right. with you about that. So so one so one set of solutions um, is, is a kind of set of like contract regulations. Let's, the problem is that th these contracts are being entered and people don't understand what's being entered. And so maybe we need a set of implied contracts or contract default rules. Mm. Uh, maybe Disclosure obligations. Another set of solutions involves things like the, uh, the proposed but not passed Do Not Track Act. Uh, Do Not Track Act. Can you say that? No. Okay. Uh, and, and, or FTC regulation using existing authority could be another part of the solution. Um, and Jack Balkin has this really interesting article that he just posted a couple of days ago suggesting that the law might see at least some people who hold our information and get it as, as so-called information fiduciaries. And, and, and looking at information uh, holders as the same way you kind of look at your lawyer or your doctor as having certain responsibilities to you that arise not purely out of contract, but from the nature of that relationship. Right? Because of the expectations you go into it with, because of the difficulty of knowing what they're going to do with the information. I mean, so you can think of all the reasons that we uh, uh, put tort like obligations on lawyers to maintain confidentiality, right? which aren't related to contract. Some of these you can't even waive as a client. So, what are the reasons right. for that? And you might find some of those same reasons obtain in, this, in, in the world of. Facebook and and OkCupid okay and Uber and now all, you yeah. looked at the you you have looked at the Balkan piece. I have not yet. I will because I think it sounds uh, very interesting. The the what's especially uh, cool I think about the idea. Just sitting here thinking about it is that 
um, the, fidu- the notion of fiduciary duty and the concept of a fiduciary is, is a, one with a very rich history, a very long track record of experiences about the good that you can obtain using this concept. Yeah. And I think taking that concept and, there, and then asking yourself questions about the role it might serve in a situation where, you know, are, are there contexts where the information holder does seem to have more expertise? where the person whose information they hold is, in a way, made more vulnerable by virtue of the fact that the other person has that information. Once you start asking yourselves questions like that and thinking through the fact that we have a legal tool that lets us address those issues, that's pretty cool. And once you, I think once you think about it, you think about Facebook and how much you post and the way, it does start to seem, boy, they feel like a fiduciary in a way, right? It feels like a relationship of trust because of just how much you're disclosing and their private messages that you can send. And so it's, it's an analogy that feels right in a way, even beyond the legal analysis, which we can get into. Right. Uh, but, but one of the reasons he moves to this is, is he, he kind of looks at the two different kinds of regulations you might expect um, without this, right, in a, in a world of legal regulation of these sorts of problems. And he leads off with these problems like Uber tracking um, journalists, uh, and and uh, there's another OkCupid okay study of the sexual practices of its users, hmm. you know, and, and so he leads with some examples that others have noted of, of things, uses of information that maybe people wouldn't have expected who use those services. And so, okay, so there's a problem. So is regulation the solution to this problem? Then he looks at um, uh, tort-like regulations, whether they're statutes or traditional tort. And what's one big problem with that? It's First Amendment, right? Um, and he looks at this, the IMS versus Sorrell case out of Vermont, uh, where Vermont tried to pass a, uh, had a statute that forbade um, pharmacists from selling physician prescription information. So, so physicians would prescribe things, right? And, and, and pharmacists would get that information, then would sell it to data miners, who would then sell it back to, I guess, sell it back to drug companies. I forget yeah. exactly. It's been a while since I've looked at it. Uh, who could then market better at the physician. So, you know, you've got a physician who's not quite prescribing quite as much Viagra as his or her peers, and you're trying to figure, <laughs> and, and you try to figure out why, and then you try to advertise to that physician, boy, you know, this is a great drug. You should be prescribing it more. So this kind of thing. Yeah. And, and so they tried to stop that, uh, and, and to give to tell pharmacists you can't sell these kind of data, uh, and the Supreme Court strikes it down, saying that it's a content-based regulation uh, and it's a speaker-based regulation. You can't. The reason the pharmacist can't say these words, here's what the physician prescribed, right. is because the person is a pharmacist and is talking about this issue. So the First Amendment is a bar, and I think one of the problems that Balkan identifies is that. The First Amendment is starting to play a Lochner-like role in the information society. This is actually what we talked about last year when we were here a little bit, I mm-hmm. think, that it is preserving kind of um, or plays a role of preserving kind of market prerogative yeah. and a shield against regulation and the, the tra- because of the nature of the economy. And the traditional, of course, the one of the traditional escape hatches from this sort of intense First Amendment scrutiny, uh, namely uh, falsehood. Uh, does no work here, right? Because right. the information that's valuable is, of course, truthful. It's, in fact, it's valuable in direct relation to its truthfulness. So the fact that you can, uh, uh, without any First Amendment problem, prohibit tra- traffic in falsehoods, like, okay, but that's not at all relevant to the deal with the pharmacists and my prescription records, right? That's all truthful. So if you're going to let me deal with truthful traffic, trafficking and truthful information, we need to have some other way of thinking and talking about it. Or we say, ah, First Amendment, 
no privacy regulation. And I think I, I think I mentioned this to you before, but there's a there's another scholar uh, named Jane Bambauer at Arizona, and I think she's r- written some stuff on this specific. You know, does the First Amendment severely undercut the ability to regulate privacy in the ways uh, so that you've been suggesting? We so, should get her on the show. I think, yeah, I think it's, it's a very important we, question. Yeah, and 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 that's going to be a recurrent problem with tort-like regulation is the First Amendment, and you're going to have this battle. So, but an area an area of which is similar in its kind of regulatory effect, but where the First Amendment doesn't come up very often is contract regulation. So you, you uh, so default rules seem to attract less First Amendment type scrutiny. Uh, Balkan points to you know Eugene Volokh, who believes that contract can solve all these problems, either explicit or implicit contract rules. Um, and he's not so convinced as I am not so convinced. As you know, what am I going to say? You know? uh, no one reads contracts. No one ever reads any contracts ever. Yeah, like that, the safest bet for whether or not any contract term has been read is zero. Yeah, and and, and in the in consumer land. It doesn't mean you'll always be right. It's just always the safest bet. I think as a statistical matter, just in consumer land, people read zero contracts, zero contract provisions. And now if that's the case, then what's the role? And, and, you know, Posner's got this really interesting argument about why you would enforce contracts even in a world where uh, uh, producers and suppliers dictate terms and they aren't amendable, which is interesting, right? But I wonder if it really works here. So privacy policies, I'm skeptical they're worth anything at all. Right, because they can not only because they can change, but because no one ever reads them. Um, even when you try to write them in understandable language, yep. I mean, people are going to click through them quickly, or even if they read them, they won't know that they're going to say. There's this whole literature which is skeptical of information provision more generally. There's Carl Schneider writing about um, uh, informed consent in the medical context. Have you ever read this stuff? No. It, really interesting. And so even under the most heroic information provision scenarios in the uh, informed consent context, you know, where the physician, not, they don't just say, here's what the procedure you should have, and here's some risk benefits and alternatives, but like you make these heroic efforts to really go through it all, still there's almost like you test them afterwards about whether they know true things, and they typically don't. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Am I saying that right? Yeah, I sure. So it's, uh, so I mean, I'm I very, know the, very I know scared. the critique of disclosure rules generally as a, as a form of regulation. Yeah, and, and part of it is just, it's not rational to read contracts. It just, it takes too much time. Like we, if you read every contract that applied to it, it's, what's much better is to free ride on the fact that you're probably not going to have a problem. So with respect to any company, right, with any service, yeah. there are going to be some people who are going to get screwed, who are going to be captured by an arbitration provision and have to arbitrate in Florida or do some other nonsense that you would not agree to if you really thought it was a realistic possibility that you would be dragged into a conflict with this company. But it's just not worth your time. Like, I'm not going to call up... Uh, I'm not going to call up OKCupid at all, just to be clear. Yeah, well, just to be clear. And, and certainly I'm sure not your Ashley, wife is happy to hear Certainly about that. not Ashley Madison. <laughs> um, uh, but if I use it, I'm not going to call up Uber and negotiate my own terms. But more than that, I'm not even going to read the terms. Because why, right? The chances that I'm going to have a problem are fairly small. If problems are high enough, and this is part of Posner's point, if there's enough of a problem that it hits reputation, then I won't use it, right? right? So there's a disincentive for companies to use their terms abusively, but there's no disincentive to write very abusive terms, right? Which it's, you then don't use. Which they then, they, they, yeah, they then don't right. use. But much better for me to free ride on the fact that I'm not going to have any problems, and, and the people who do have problems are going to be screwed, but there are going to be relatively few of those people. I mean, that's the rational response, and that's how most of us treat contracts, even if we aren't conscious of the fact that we're sacrificing a few people who are caught up in this crazy... Last point, last yeah. point about ahead, contracts yeah. and reading contracts is just, I mean, given the time of year, 
uh, not to date this episode too too badly, but uh, Halloween is coming up, and if you're thinking about scary things you might read on We've your porch, we've already talked about creepy things. Um, yeah, then you yeah. can you could just read some terms of use <laughs> provisions and scare the neighborhood kids, and because um, there's some pretty awful stuff in there. Um, okay, so if uh, so, if contract's not going to work, and traditional tort has a First Amendment problem, how is fiduciary duty law any better? It is a it is enforced in tort. Because it enforces, I, th- I think the argument is uh, that it enforces expectations in a direct way, which can be rational, right? And it is without the control of the parties, but can be sensitive to context, right? And then you can also uh, tack onto it. Here's what I like about it. You tack onto it, you can put the myth of contract into the fiduciary context. So, you, so people do seem to be choosing to be fiduciaries, and that lets you get enough of the contract piece into the mix mm-hmm. to sidestep the First Amendment problem, uh, rather than having it just sort of take over your analysis. I'm just not sure. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, a fiduciary duty to hold the information securely not to, um, maybe he's clearer in the longer version of this argument, so okay. I don't want to say that Balkan's not, doesn't have it all nailed down, but I'm sure, you know, he, he talks specifically about how this can vary by, by, by context. And you'd have to flesh out this duty, right? That would be the very point, would be fleshing out the, what does it mean to be an information fiduciary? So what are the sorts of things that someone who holds information about others, what should we expect and therefore require them to do? in terms of sound practice. Some of that will be what we think most people would want them to do. So you can think of it almost like the rules of intestate succession. What do we think most people would put in their will if most people wrote wills? They don't. But what would we put in there? Um, And you might do other things to inform how the fiduciary's duties would be spelled. But that would be the task, is to come up with some rich, thick sense of what those, uh, what that person is agreeing to do by stepping into that role. And very often it might be along the lines of if I, you know, if I log into Facebook for this social network experience, I don't expect, and they would have a fiduciary duty maybe not to aggregate data from something that I wouldn't have expected was associated with Facebook. Or, you know, I wouldn't expect Google to track down all of my bills in this way. And they have a duty maybe to maintain, even if they want to present some kind of proactive experience online by telling me where I'm going to you know, what's, what the weather's going to be in the city where I land, uh, that they do that in such a way that no person could reverse engineer and find that information out. You might do things uh, that, are, that, are, that are like that. I think Balkan's point is that the fiduciary concept, if you think about a lawyer, right, the, the way that a lawyer has a fiduciary duty to keep information confidential, and, and oftentimes that's not waivable, right, um, no, you, we would laugh, I think, out of court, a lawyer's claim that, well, you know, my client told me a very interesting story, which is potentially worth millions, and I have this, I'm a creative person, and I want to be me, and I want to write this story, I want to tell the world about this story, uh, and it's a First Amendment violation, right, not to allow me, this is a regulation of my speech because I am a lawyer, think about the Sorrell case again, right. it's a content-based regulation of what I'm saying because of who I am, that. In the fiduciary duty world, that doesn't seem to make sense. And so if you transform your perspective on what's happening when you're providing information to a website away from bilateral contract to fiduciary obligation, suddenly arguments which seem to have more intuitive bite have a lot less intuitive bite, right? If I think of Facebook as establishing a relationship of trust with me, 
in a certain way, you know, not in the same way as a lawyer, not in the same way as a doctor, but that there's a certain expectation that comes in. This reminds me actually of Woody Hartzog's, uh, we had him on the show recently talking about some of this stuff. And, Mm -hmm. And he would, I think this article was about the contract, but basically the way a site is designed would become part of the contract with the user, right? So the way a site is designed becomes an enforceable expectation. So if you can delete posts, right, and that's part of the design of the website, there's an obligation actually to delete the post rather than to have it separate. So maybe that could be, uh, uh, I think that almost makes more sense to me in the fiduciary context than it does in the contract context. But a core part of it is that it's not, a core part of a a lot of this concept is that these things are not waivable. That it's precisely because the nature of the relationship is such that the person who is more vulnerable is in no position to make a decision about it that that the law gives us this unwaivable off the rack and it's not because we're concept. ignorant unsophisticated people one of the reasons to make it unwaivable is that if it's waivable it will be part of a click through contract that again no one ever reads right so people yeah, wave stuff all the time right. but it doesn't actually reflect any kind of autonomy or anything you had your hand up yeah well so so the question is whether a fiduciary duty regime of the type that Balkan describes would be similar to a European approach of having certain principles of autonomy and privacy, which find expression in rulings of the, I guess, the European Commission of Human Rights and other bodies. And uh, <laughs> the short answer is I'm too ignorant to be able to, to say. Uh, and maybe that's not all my fault, because this is an emerging area of European law that is changing all the time. I mean, the, the uh, right to be forgotten stuff is, I still don't know right. what shape that's going to take. Um, so I don't, I don't know. It, it does seem, it does have that flavor, right, that this, the fiduciary idea itself is, seems to be a principle, that there is a relationship here which implies trust, and that carries along with a lot of other stuff, and that's going to be uh, either expounded in regulation or in judicial determinations. So well, but, but those judicial, well, it's important if the, certainly in the Anglo-American tradition, the enforcement mechanism for a lot of fiduciary duties is, is private rights of action, not agency adjudications or agency investigations. So I think I, I would, again, not having read the Balkan piece at all, I'm really free to just woohoo and speculate. But I, but it just seems to me that the, the question, what's the best uh, implementation of the enforcement side of the equation is analytically distinct from the question, what kind of thing are you trying to accomplish and what tool do you want to use to do it? Now, once you pick the fiduciary duty tool, you can fall back on the fact that we have hundreds of years worth of experience of in fiduciary duties being enforced in, in tort in private lawsuits, rather than having to use a centralized agency, blah, 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 right? Um, so it, it, but they do seem like analytically distinct, at least. Yeah, I, one question I have, and, and again, I have not read the longer piece carefully enough to know whether he really gets at this, is, is it, I don't, I'm not sure that gets us all the way there. Facebook seems intuitively, as I've said repeatedly, it seems intuitively like a, like a fiduciary, right. and, um, and maybe Twitter, maybe a few other sites. But when I click on a random link from Twitter, which takes me to a Huffington Post piece or something like that, and if I have on Ghostry, I can see there are like 13 different trackers that it blocks, right? Which I'm, the higher that number, the more appreciative I am for having Ghostry installed. Are they a fiduciary because they now have information that I visited the site? And there's an obligation not to, that seems to, once you've at that level, it seems like the fiduciary part has less bite and really you're just enacting a substantive privacy regulation on all people who collect information on the web. You know what I mean? Uh, I do. And, yeah. and I agree with you that it, is a, that it gets harder in that, in that sense. 
um, but there could be still plenty of benefit accomplished uh, with respect to sites that many people spend a lot of their time using and therefore are low-hanging fruit. You know, I wonder if there's not... For a privacy initiative of I'll, this type. I wonder if there's not a dynamic here. So one of the interesting things, one of the reasons I thought this would be kind of interesting to talk about with, with this group is um, that you have a, a real disruption in the private marketplace at the same time that you've had a... Now, um, uh, those of you from the FTC can tell me how old this is, but at least decade, decade and a half long effort to get um, uh, privacy regulations on the web that protect expectations. Of pri- so all that's happening. You know, now, now we have this real disruption, and now we have advertising. Maybe we need to do something different. Um, I wonder if there can be a dynamic here, kind of like I'm thinking of like preemption regulations. So how do you get like automobile manufacturers in favor of federal regulation? you make it preemptive, right? So it can deal with the fact that states are starting to do mm. this stuff, right? And so you can actually get the regulated in- industry in favor of regulation if they think they will have a single pole star at which to at As opposed to, to having to deal with the 50 state. So the fed- the, a federal regulation becomes more desirable yeah. because it's compared to 50 different state regulations. And, and this is not that. And I'm not even saying that federal regulation here is, is preferable to state level, even fiduciary duty or whatever it's going to be. Right. Uh, but, but is there a similar kind of thing going here where, where you have a regulated industry who now wants regulation precisely because the alternative seems even worse, right? And the alternative here is a private marketplace that may completely disrupt their existing business models. I wonder if some of that's happened. What do you think? I don't know. Oh boy, could we're, be. We're supposed to know stuff. I think. Yeah. Wasn't I, that the? Isn't that why we're invited? To well, see for, I mean, <laughs> fortunately, now that we've reached the thing where we really don't know, we're 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 very fast running out of time. So that's good that we're we we, we sort of hit our ability to help people. But um, is this the end of our ability to help people? It might be at least for today. Well, do we have any other comments or questions? Or if you guys want to say, you know, you guys are full of it, we we get that all the time. So uh, I feel like I've seen that look on a lot of faces already. So. I'm taking that as red. Yeah. Okay, and, and here we got a question about whether we would really want this bit of law to apply every time someone throws up a website, uh, which is very common these days. So, for example, uh, the, the audience member brought up a kid who throws up a website to do something simple, whether it's selling something as a, on a one-off basis or something like that. Great question. Well, this is part of the, this is one of the, the geniuses of the private right of action, of course, is that um, uh, the answer can be yes, because we won't care about that kid until that kid does lots of harm, right? So the kid who does it and doesn't actually accomplish any harm, uh, the fact that the rule exists to punish him if he does perpetrate harm is, uh, is obviously irrelevant, right? Um, uh, but I, I don't know, maybe there's a different approach to that. Well, it's also... I. And I, I don't want to keep pushing on it's the also fiduciary. An I'm, not, I, I'm not saying the fiduciary concept is a silver bullet, so I don't want to be misunderstood that way. No, it's a brass I'll, bullet. I, <laughs> um, uh, but but I think one of the points about the fiduciary duty is that it's it's con- it's it's substance is flexible too, and can be so. The, the amount of trust that you repose in a large social network in which you invest lots of your time and lots of private information and you have private conversations as well as public ones is just radically different than the amount of trust you repose in a website that a kid has thrown up to sell, I don't know, lemonade, right? I mean, yeah. where, where you're entering one set of information there. Uh, look, I mean, a kid who throws up a website and stores information on that website is already subject to federal law anyway uh, sure. against breach. So it's not as though this is, uh, that kid is, is, is like, you remember that movie Kidco from the 80s? No. You don't? No. 
Um, I wonder if that movie holds up. I yeah, if you it's, watch it, that. it seems it like a Trojan horse Ayn Rand thing in, oh, okay. in retrospect right mm-hmm. now. But anyway, the kid who starts a business and the mean federal regulators come in and he makes an argument about double taxation. And it's, uh, <laughs> anyway, but I, I, I'm thinking about this, this is why kid I don't now. remember it. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but, but that kid is already subject to the mean federal regulators, right? Uh, it, under the Store Communications Act and all kinds of other things. If they, uh, if they, oh, we have one minute, 60 seconds, which is good because I'm running out of steam. Yeah. Uh, uh, anybody else have like a closing thought, closing jab, a closing attack, a closing comment? How about a yes. nice, how about something friendly? Well, I, I, I just don't expect it. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> let, let me, let me just address that really quickly at the end. Uh, um, so the question is about the imprecision of all this. We say, you know, we got to protect these data. We got to do this thing and this duty will do that. But, but these these uh, cases could be quite different, right? And and the law needs to have some precision in order to treat different things differently instead of different things alike. And that's the law has various ways of doing that in all kinds of fields, right? It either has detailed regulations which pick out specific targets and there's certainty that comes from the detail and the regulation, or we the law works through broad principles which are then detailed through the application by judges, right? So we have different kinds of institutions doing different sorts of things to arrive at ultimately precise answers, either using broad principles or detailed regulations. And the fiduciary duty idea is a broad principle idea which finds detailed expression in case-specific adjudication, and, which leads to precedent and other things. But you can also imagine a top-down, like, detailed FTC regulation. Although a lot of the FTC regulations are quite broad and principle-like. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, thank you guys so much. This was super fun. Hopefully the audio we get out of this will be usable and it will be available. All you got to do, if you want to hear... Uh, I, I hate to say, it. if you want to hear more of this and, and better stuff too, I think, right? Uh, <laughs> just download any podcast app, uh, including Marco Arment's yeah, Overcast, Overcast, which we yeah. very much like, and just search for Oral Argument and you'll find us and you can subscribe. So thanks a bunch. Thank you. Thank you.